0: Hi, this is David Flowers, senior pastor at Grantham Church, an intergenerational convergent third-way congregation with the Brethren in Christ U.S. and located in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast and for following the sermons that I and many others preach at Grantham. This is a free podcast and it'll always be that way, but if you'd like to give and help further the work we're doing for the kingdom, we'd greatly appreciate it. If you want to do that, you can do that by going to granthamchurch.org and clicking on the giving tab. Whether you're a member of our church or you're listening as A podrishner, it's our greatest desire that you would encounter Jesus and be changed by the good news wherever you are. Anyway, God bless you, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. This morning, we continue our fall sermon series Spiritual and Religious. If you're just joining us for this series this morning, Spiritual and Religious is a seven-week series that invites us to see that spirituality is really a vague individualistic impulse toward the transcendent, and it's not enough to shape us as disciples of Jesus. As the New Testament will attest, there is good in religion, and we're going to see that this morning with Jesus was religious. In fact, Christ is, was religious and correctly understood the Christian religion has handed down observance of the church calendar and spirit-infused practices like prayer, scripture, creeds, sacraments, and ancient liturgies to properly form us into his image. We've been saying over and over again in this series, God doesn't need these things, we need them to be properly formed in our worship. And here's where we've been and where we're going in this series. In the first message, a message entitled, I See That You Are Very Spiritual. I shared how the Western assault on religion began, commended those who say they are spiritual but not religious, but challenged us to see that Jesus requires more from us. And then last week in the sermon Spiritual But Not Religious, we saw how all of us are religious, or as Jamie Smith has said, we're all liturgical beings by nature. So even if we're not involved in organized religion, something else will fill the void, and we will inevitably seek the good life by habitually orienting our lives around what the world says that we ought to love. Thus, we highlighted the need for religious formation that aims our loves at Christ. That is, if we're serious about calling ourselves Christians, we should be about doing that. After last week's message, I hope you're able to give some thought to the American idols and competing liturgies that are constantly pressing in on us to shape us and form us because they're not going after your mind, as we saw last week, as much as your heart What you love, look at your heart because you can't think your way to holiness, we said. You see, that's why they they are so alluring and seductive. Why many evangelicals, you see, and I think we've all observed this, can give mental assent to Jesus' life and teachings, but tragically, tragically not see that their living, including their politics, are a true reflection of their loves. We can all see that incongruency there. In his book, You Are What You Love, Jamie Smith says, our loves and longings are steered wrong, not because we've been hoodwinked by bad ideas, but because we've been immersed in deformative liturgies and we've not realized it. We've been immersed in deformative liturgies of the world and not realized it. In other words, it's possible to believe Christian teaching even to drop in for a church service a couple times a month while simultaneously bowing to secularism, nationalism, and the many religious forces of the world all around us because we have given them greater liturgical power over us, greater than those of Christ and the church. This is why embracing religion is so important. So we have to ask ourselves, which story do we want to live into? Because what we really love will determine the direction of our lives. It's our habits. It's our routines that set the trajectory of our lives. You see, because we're all looking for a religion that will make sense of our deepest questions, that will make sense of our search for identity and for purpose, and to know and have hope and where it's all going. We all long for this, and we're going to find those answers somewhere. We want to be intentional about finding it in Christ, in the church, and the Christian religion. As Some of you may have seen a, a post this last Thursday by Derek Thompson, a staff writer for The Atlantic, in an article on making sense of the rise of the nuns and those who are ditching religion, uh, Derek wrote this. He said, secular Americans who are familiar with the ways that traditional faiths have betrayed modern liberalism may not have examined how organized religion has historically offered solutions to their modern existential anxieties. Making friends as an adult without a weekly congregation is hard. Establishing a weekend routine to soothe Sunday afternoon nerves is hard. Reconciling the overwhelming sense of life's importance with the universe's ostensible indifference to human suffering is hard. He says, although belief in God is no panacea for these problems, it doesn't answer all of these problems. Religion is more than a theism, Derek says. It's more than a theism. It is a bundle, a theory of the world, of a community, a social identity, a means of finding peace and purpose and a weekly routine. And Derek goes on to say, those like me who have largely rejected this package deal often find themselves shopping a la carte for meaning, community, and routine to fill a a faith-shaped void. He says their politics is a religion. Their work, their career is a religion. Their spin class is a church. And not looking at their phone for several consecutive hours is a Sabbath. American nuns may well build successful secular systems of belief, purpose, and community. But imagine, he says, what a devout believer might think. Millions of Americans have abandoned religion only to recreate it everywhere they look. Powerful quote and insight by Derek Thompson. And I believe Derek is right. And that's what last message was last week's message was all about if you were here. That sounded very familiar, didn't it? Which brings us to the third sermon in our seven-week uh, seven-part series, a message entitled Jesus Was Religious. But before we go any further, would you pray with me as always here, Grant, that we want to recognize that there are other religious forces at work and unseen forces that would keep us from hearing? and responding to the Holy Spirit. I invite you to to pray with me. Father, our hearts are open to you. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would speak to our hearts, that we would recognize, Lord, that it is your voice that is speaking. And God, we'd be able to discern your voice from all the other voices and give us the courage to respond to Your voice. And bless us, Lord, in our efforts to obey. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Back in 2012, there was a video about Jesus being opposed to religion that went viral on the internet as it resonated with a lot of spiritual but not religious people, even many Christians. And I admit, back in 2012, I probably shared this video too. Uh, The the video was of Jefferson Bethke, a young man busting a rap rhyme called, Why I Hate Religion, But Love Jesus. It was admittedly a slick, creative presentation seven years ago. In his lyrical sermon, which now has over 34 million views, Bethke, who I believe was sincerely trying to do a good thing, speaks of religion as the embodiment of everything that is wrong with the church, maybe even with the world, going so far to pit Jesus against the institutional church. And Bethke says that Jesus actually came to abolish religion. He raps. He says this. See, the problem with religion is it never gets to the core. It's just behavior modification like a long list of chores. Did I say he was sincere? Well, he could have been more concerned about growing his YouTube channel. I don't know. Well, look, much of what Bethke is talking about is called hypocrisy by Jesus, not religion. It's called hypocrisy and false religion is what the rest of the Scriptures call it, as we'll see this morning. And Bethke's language is far more reflective of post-Enlightenment secularism, American individualism, and the total privatization of spirituality than it is of historic Christianity. And what is truly sad is that most of us don't see that. We are like the fish swimming in the water. We don't understand, we don't recognize the water in which we are swimming in. But this is it. This is where we're at. But unfortunately, an attempt to, you see, help the cause of Christ, this zealous 20-something goes too far and speaks about religion in ways that Jesus never did, nor has the church, east or west, for almost 2,000 years. You see, it's only been in the last few centuries that we've seen this modern disdain for religion. And as I said earlier in this series, it's been in the past few decades here in America that we've seen a growing hostility toward organized religion. And here are some of the objections that you will hear even from Christians. Folks say Jesus wasn't religious. We'll see this morning that He very much was religious. And people say, it's not about religion, it's about a relationship. And I say, well, yeah, I mean, ultimately it is about following Jesus, but it's not just Jesus and you. How do you think you heard about Jesus? How do you think you got that Bible that you have in your lap? It didn't fall out of heaven into your backyard. All of this comes to us through the mechanism of the Christian religion, as we'll see this morning. Jesus didn't come to start a religion, some people will say. and We'll see this morning that, that, well, that is true. Jesus already had a religion. It was called Judaism. We'll also see that Judaism could not contain Christ. Judaism didn't accept Christ. Judaism couldn't contain Christ, and it's natural, even inevitable, that a religion around Jesus of Nazareth, the Lord of the cosmos, would form. We'll see that become clear this morning. And of course, those who say Christianity isn't a religion, well, the only people that say that are people in the church who've bought into secularism. You say that to anybody outside of the church, and they wonder if you're smoking something. What do you mean Christianity is a religion? Of course, Christianity is a religion. Remember how we defined religion last week. We said religion comes from the root word religio, which means to bind something together. We see the word religion appears five times in the New Testament, and it is itself a neutral term when it's used in the New Testament. At least we define it this way. Religion is a socio cultural system of designated beliefs, values, behaviors, and practices that provide meaning, purpose, and direction to a person's life and to the world around them. And a functional definition that I've given for this series that I want us to think about when we hear that word religion or, or to be religious is this it refers to practices of prayer of Scripture, devotion to Scripture, reading. It could be Lectio Divina, to reading Scripture in the sanctuary, to sacrament, to liturgy, etc. And all of this handed down to us so that we would be properly formed in worship. And we've been saying, we don't get to make this stuff up. This stuff is ancient. This stuff is ancient. As I said a moment ago, while Jesus didn't come to start a religion, He had one already, it was inevitable that a religion would form up around Him. For Judaism couldn't contain Christ, the Messiah from Nazareth, could not be contained by Judaism. And you can still see today, Judaism lives on without Jesus, doesn't it? Still hoping that one day a Messiah to their liking will come. So because Judaism or at least because of the religious leaders and gatekeepers of Second Temple Judaism of Jesus' day, they rejected him. Naturally, then, a new movement emerged in the first century, and that movement would become the religion we call Christianity. I'll talk about the birth of Christianity a, a bit more next week, but to keep with the focus of this message, let me simply mention two really important points about the purpose of the Christian religion. The first point is this, to, the purpose of Christian religion is to properly form disciples to be like Christ. We said we need a mechanism. We need an apparatus in order to do that. We need practices of Scripture, of prayer, of Bible reading, of sacrament, and of liturgy to shape us, because if we don't adopt that, if we don't come into what is ancient, we will be shaped informed by the world's liturgies. And denying that they are there and they are present and they are ever-present danger is only hurting us. Number two, the second point, the purpose of the Christian religion is to preserve and pass on faith in Jesus Christ. If you want to ensure that your children and that your grandchildren tell the old, old story and pass on the Christian faith and adhere to the life and the teachings of Jesus, then you're going to need Religion. To do it, You see, for even early Judaism and the Hebrew faith, which is where the story of our faith began, proper religious formation and preserving and passing on the faith was not only important, but it was commanded by God in the Torah. I want you to notice that this morning. It was actually commanded by God. For example, take a look at Deuteronomy chapter 6, beginning with verse 4. Verse 4 begins with what is called the Hebrew Shema. Shema is the word for hear. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Hey, don't forget how radical that statement is in the ancient Near East. At this point, this is the only monotheistic religion that exists. (laughs) God is one. There aren't many gods. There's only one God, and He is the Lord. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength Look what he goes on to say in verse 6. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. The idea of a stamp, right? To impress them onto your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. In other words, in everything that you do, be shaped by this. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. And Jews would actually do this literally. Even in Jesus' day, they would use leather to strap portions of Scripture around their arm. They would use leather to strap a little box on their forehead that contained the Scriptures from the Torah. Clearly, the Lord wants us to embrace religion, to impress upon future generations the deep meaning of our faith. And this religious formation at home, is, you see, is just as important today as it was then, if not more so. The latest Barnes study indicates that nearly half of all Americans, nearly half of all Americans who accept Christ and the Christian faith do so before reaching the age of 13. That's interesting, isn't it? And that two out of three born-again Christians made that commitment to Christ before their 18th birthday. And you know, that really shouldn't surprise us, especially those of us who are parents. We see that the brain of a child is like a sponge. In fact, neuroscience tells us that's exactly what it is. The brains of children are longing and yearning for information, for habits, for rituals. Tell me how to live. If you don't think it's true, just go substitute teach a junior high class. Try it. I'm not kidding you. As soon as you break away from the order of the classroom, all hell will break loose. It's true. Elementary school classes as well. I've seen it. I've actually subbed those classes we all long for it, especially children. So, you know, despite what the secular age may say about raising children, you know, like, you know, I just want to let our kids decide for themselves what they want to believe, you know. Let them read some, some ancient Greek, you know, philosophers and, and just let them decide. Folks, it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. We have to give them something. And you can call it indoctrination if you want. It's it's not really that. It's it's being responsible as a parent. That's what it is. He's saying God created your children to shape them and mold their minds just as we're called to do the same for our own lives. It's our responsibility to guide them, help aim their loves toward Christ and the kingdom. Children are ritual animals. And so it's in childhood and adolescence that we must, as Jamie Smith says… Be intentional about the formative rhythms of the household so that it is another recalibrating space, just like our worship service, another recalibrating space that forms us and prepares us to be launched into the world to carry out both the cultural mandate and the Great Commission to bear God's image to and for our neighbors. So think about that. What sorts of patterns, what sort of liturgies are at work in your own home as we also consider what's at work in the church and what forces are shaping us. You say, well, what does this have to do with Jesus being religious? Well, everything, everything, and consider how Jesus was religious beginning with the fact that he was raised by pious parents. Yes, it's true. Mary and Joseph were pious Jews. They were both law-abiding, faithful Jews, which is one of the reasons why God chose them, because they were very religious. You also remember they had Jesus circumcised when he was a week and a day old, according to their Jewish faith. We also know that his parents named all of his siblings Old Testament names, and a name back in the ancient Near East was a big deal. They weren't looking to find what was, what was trending, you know, in the Hellenistic world. What names are popular today? No. The names meant something. And in this case, it meant that their faith was important. And when Jesus was 12, you remember they took Jesus to the temple. Do you remember that? You know, some scholars think that this was actually a rite of passage. That Jesus was, right, right as Jesus is becoming a man, they take him to the temple in Jerusalem because he has learned the Torah, because he's even memorized huge portions of the Torah, and he's taken to the temple to interact with the teachers of the law. They were very religious, they were very pious. Jesus' upbringing was religious. It's there in the temple that we can see that Jesus had been uh, educated in Torah and the Jewish faith in the synagogue of Nazareth. You remember, he even stumps some of the religious leaders there when he's there in Jerusalem. Uh, he would have learned about this story of Israel, memorized significant portions, of that, as I said, of Scripture, not just the Torah, but the prophets and the writings as well. Maybe even entire books. Some scholars say that children had to learn the book of Leviticus. How would you like that? <laughs> the book of Leviticus. Some of us don't even open up the book of Leviticus. But the book of Leviticus is about how to, how to follow after God, how to live Pure, holy, clean lives. Not only did faithful Jews take the religion seriously, but remember that this is an, an oral culture where a good bit of folks are, are illiterate. And so they're learning to tell stories. They're listening to stories. They're listening to the Scripture. They're soaking it in and taking it on and, and, and communicating it through their life. Also, the Gospels tell us that Jesus took pilgrimages to Jerusalem for various feasts. That is that Jesus followed the Jewish religious calendar. Just like our Christian calendar, which seeks to tell the story of God's working in the world through Jesus, from Advent to Easter and so on, the Jewish calendar recognized and celebrated events like Purim or Hanukkah, The Feast of Tabernacles, the Day of Atonement, Passover, Pentecost. Jesus worked his way through this religious calendar every year. And we see him going to Jerusalem to recognize these feasts and festivals. The religious calendar was meant, you see, to, to remind them, to retell the story, and to invite Jews and the rest of the world to live into the story of their faith in God. We, we also know that Jesus worshipped at the temple in Jerusalem every Passover, this high feast for the Jews, the highest feast of all, as they remember how, how the angel of death passed over those who had the blood over their door, and God led them out in the Exodus. And Jesus took Passover seriously. And notice, while Jesus enjoyed hikes with the Father in the Judean wilderness, for those of you who see nature as a sanctuary, that's great. Jesus did that sort of thing too. We also need to notice that Jesus faithfully observed the Sabbath and attended the local synagogue. Luke tells us in his gospel, chapter 2, verse 16, it says, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue as was his custom. As was his custom. And furthermore, Jesus Jesus would have recited the Hebrew Shema, which we read a moment ago, probably daily, as this would have been like the Jewish creed. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. In addition, Jesus kept other religious practices. Uh, Look at some of these. He fasted. Uh, He tithed. He gave alms to the poor. Jesus prayed to two to three times, at least regularly two to three times a day. There are many instances in the Gospels where the disciples can't find Jesus because He's off praying early in the morning. And it seems to be some kind of indication that maybe His prayer time had extended beyond what the normal Jewish prayer time was because they'd already expected Jesus back and He hadn't returned. (laughs) Where have you been? The people are looking for you. Jesus took his prayer life seriously. Also notice something that's often, I think, overlooked especially for evangelicals and Protestants is that Jesus wore a prayer shawl. You say, what? Are you sure about that? Yeah, he wore a prayer shawl and tassels. Uh, Jesus, Jesus um wore a prayer shawl and tassels hanging just below the garment. So tassels, you know, like the tassels on your graduating cap, right? So these tassels, four for four corners, would hang just below the outer garment so people could see it. It was a reminder that I'm a person that keeps God's commands. I'm a follower of Yahweh, a sign that you worshiped the only living, ever-living God, and they, they, what we know is they were blue and white, which was symbolic of holiness and the life of heaven. Now check this out. You may remember this story, the story where Jesus heals the woman with the issue of bleeding. Uh, Luke tells us, chapter 8, verse 44, she came up behind him and touched the fringe of his clothes, and immediately her hemorrhage stopped. We see that this phrase in the Greek is used elsewhere to describe those tassels. This woman is reaching out to touch the tassels of Jesus, which are symbolic for the life of heaven. And we know that this woman is instantly healed. This is the passage where it says that Jesus felt the power go out of him. Think about how religious Jesus was. As we continue to think about how Jesus was religious, let's take a closer look at how he prayed. Uh, Jesus prayed, as I said, early in the morning. We also see him spending an extended period of time praying in the evening. Uh, Jesus prayed spontaneous, extemporaneous prayers of supplication to the Father, as well as using the Psalms, which was known as the Jewish prayer book. You know, one of the most familiar scenes of Jesus doing this is when Jesus is on the cross. Jesus had memorized Jewish prayers. It's not an extemporaneous prayer that Jesus prays from the cross, but a written prayer. You know, there's power in praying written prayers. And how many times have you ever been in a place that's like, I don't know what to pray. I can't find the words. Isn't it great that we have the book of Psalms and like the book of common prayer, ancient prayers to help us? It helped Jesus in his deepest time of need. Yet, you know, someone might protest, but didn't Jesus condemn religious people for praying in public? Yes, but let's be clear, Jesus himself prayed in public. We see that in the Gospels. The reason Jesus tells His followers of Matthew 6 to pray in secret is to contrast real meaningful prayer with the ostentatious prayers of the Pharisees who prayed only to impress people. I always remember there was a, a man in the church I, gr- I grew up in who always prayed in King James language. It, was, it impressed a little kid, you know. It's like, oh, holy thine Father, you know. It was like, whoa, wow. I don't know if he was sincere or not, but… See, that's not the only problem that Jesus had with the Pharisees who wore a religious, uh, who were a religious group. You remember the Pharisees? They, that Jesus appears, actually, you share the most in common with theologically. A lot of people don't know this or taught this, but Jesus shared a great deal in common with the Pharisees, but frequently rebuked their false piety and their bad religion. Listen to what Matthew records in his gospel, chapter 23, beginning with verse 1. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to the disciples, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, they sit in Moses' seat. So you must be careful to do everything that they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. Hmm. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them verse 5, Jesus continues, everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide. That's what we talked about, the leather straps around the arm and the forehead. They're called phylacteries. But notice what Jesus said, they make theirs extra big. (laughs) You see, Jesus isn't condemning the use of the phylactery. Jesus is, and let me say, neither am I saying that we all should start wearing phylacteries. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But these religious accoutrements is not what Jesus is condemning. Jesus says, no, it's because they make theirs extra large and the tassels under their garment extra long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called a rabbi by others. And Jesus says that their, their religion... Their prayers, their religious attire, their worship, their holy habits is just a ruse. It's just a cover for what's really happening, who they really are. That's what Jesus had a problem with. You see, the Pharisees showed that it's possible to be religious on the outside, but not allow that religion to truly form you and your loves. This is what Jesus opposed, and for this, Jesus delivers seven woes and rebukes to these religious hypocrites there in Matthew 23. We're not going to look at all of those woes. Let's just look at one of them. Jesus says this in verse 27, woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. This is a warning. This is what a woe is, in case you did another woe, you know. This is a warning. This is a rebuke. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. The word hypocrites is those, these are like play actors in the Greek world. Those who wear a mask. That's not who they are. There's someone underneath. Woe to you, Pharisees and hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. And the same way on the outside you appear... To people is righteous, but on the inside you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. You know, Jesus' words remind me of what some of the prophets took issue with in the Old Testament. We hear Isaiah do this, Micah do this. Listen to what the prophet Amos says as he speaks the word of the Lord to the religious hypocrites of his day. Amos says in chapter 5, verse 21, voicing the word of the Lord, the word of the Lord says, I hate... I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them, says the Lord. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs, I will not listen to the music of your harps. You see, this is what the Lord says to a hypocritical church practicing false religion. And this verse that many of us know so well, Amos 5, verse 24, but instead the Lord says, let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. That's what God wants the most. That's what should be coming out of our religion. And think about this, unlike the prophet Amos, Jesus wasn't condemning people who were religious and utterly immoral people. No, he's speaking these words to people who were reputable people. Uh, They were upstanding, well-to-do people. But if they've used their religion in the worst way as a reason not to seek true righteousness, not to seek true justice or to extend mercy and grace to those in desperate need. Instead, they are self-righteous. They are self-indulgent and think they are better than everyone else, including, as Jesus said, those who killed the prophets. You see, brothers and sisters, that's what Jesus opposes, hypocrisy and bad religion, the sort of religious activity that's done merely to keep, us, to keep up appearances or for your own self-serving purposes, but not for real training in righteousness, not for real fruit and formation. Because true religion, as James says, ought to produce fruit in keeping with Jesus. Look at what James says in chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. James says, those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves. And their religion is worthless. In other words, all of the stuff that you submit to in the church is worthless if you show that you can't keep a tight rein on your tongue. And James says, verse 27 Religion that our God, God our Father, accepts is pure and faultless, and it looks like this to look after orphans and widows in their distress, so the most vulnerable in our society, and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Again, look at verse 26. For James, an uncontrolled tongue reveals that a person's religion is no good. And it could either be that these folks running their mouths are, are using their religion as a cover for a corrupt heart, or that there isn't enough religion there in the first place to properly form them. And whatever the case, James tells us that you know a person's religion is making an impact on them when they are bearing fruit. On top of controlling their speech, they are caring for those that Jesus cared for and are careful not to be polluted by the world, James says, which in the Greek literally means that their neighbors can't criticize or say anything ill about them. They are above Reproach, as Paul would tell Timothy, just as Jesus was. Oh, that our religion would be pure and faultless like this. But church, we know that that's not always the case, is it? I mean, that's why one of the first things that if you start to Google why are Christians, one of the things you'll get is so hypocritical. Now, on one one hand, I will say that the church should be a place for hypocrites. Hypocrites are everywhere in the world. But at least in the church, we're trying to reform ourselves. We're trying to learn what it means to follow Jesus and to get the bad religion out of us. To challenge the competing liturgies. To become all that Jesus wants us to be as flourishing human beings. But again, as I said, we don't often live up to that. And you know, as they say, and it is a biblical thing to say, confession is good for the soul. And so I'd like to invite you to pray this prayer of confession with me before we close in prayer. Pray this with me. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought to the glory of your name. Amen. Holy Father, we see now that Jesus was religious. And Lord, we know that you abhor false religion and hypocrisy. Help us, Lord, as we take that seriously as we look in the mirror this morning, as we confess our sins, we open ourselves up to you and ask that you would shape us and form us to be your people who look religious the way that you are religious. God, we need you. Lord, we need you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.